It was Sir William Osler. He was a medical instructor teaching medical students the importance of exactness. And this is how he did it. On the first day of class, on his desk, there was a little vial of some body fluid from a patient. And he said, gentlemen, it was all men, he said, it is possible using the body fluid of a patient to determine the exact disease. So what he did is he took his finger and he dipped it in the vial and then to his mouth as if to taste it. And he said, what I'd like you to do is to do exactly as I have done. And then he passed it out to all of the students that were there. And one by one, the brave medical students dipped their finger in the fluid. And then with sour face, they tasted it as, as he walked by. And when he finished passing it out to the, all, uh, the whole, he came back and he said, now this is the lesson in exactness. If you had noted... That I, or if you had observed, you would have noted that I dipped my index finger in, but I put my middle finger to my mouth. They didn't observe exactly as he had done, and so they went through the painful process. Tonight, as we come to chapter 15 and through these successive chapters of 1 Samuel, we find a lesson in exactness. We find that even a small mistake can be costly. And as we study these chapters, we come to the life of Israel's first king, King Saul. And though there's many lessons, the loudest one that we see as we go through this segment is the necessity of obedience and the importance of exactness as it relates to such. Now Saul's failure, and it was a failed life, a failed ministry, it's the result of disobedience, incomplete obedience. Now, there's something about that word, obedience, or obey, that when we say it or when you hear it, there's something inside that it kind of just rubs us the wrong way. It challenges us. The word obedience, whether we perceive it or not, it challenges our intelligence. It implies that there's something that we don't already know that we have to learn from someone else or be instructed. We need to be told. It challenges our authority. It implies that we're inferior in rank, and therefore we must follow the instructions of someone else. It challenges our dignity. It makes us feel overshadowed and upstaged. It challenges our sense of self-worth, if you would. It challenges our usefulness. It makes us feel non-essential. Like we're the generic, but somewhere else there's a name brand. Someone who can do what we do better, and therefore, well, we're, we're just not as qualified. And it challenges our originality or our creativity. We're just following orders, and we want to be artists, not ditto machines, just doing what someone else does. We all know that feeling that if we're operating in obedience, that we're just following someone else, and that we're really just not all that important. But let me ask you this. If you were having a surgical procedure done and the chief surgeon in the hospital, the chief operator that did those procedures wasn't there and you had to give yourself to the surgeon's assistant, would you want one that's obedient, that follows the instructions that are given, or would you want someone who's a pioneer? I know a whole new way to do this operation, and this is my chance to finally try it. 
Or perhaps if you were on an airplane and the pilot fell ill and the landing of the plane fell to the co-pilot who was sitting next to him. Would you want a co-pilot that was obedient, that followed the instructions that were given? Or would you want an artist? Someone who would say, you know, no one's ever landed a plane backwards before. But I think. What about a leader of the people of God? Someone who's called to make decisions and decrees based upon an invisible kingdom and intangible information that critically affects future outcomes. Or to say it another way, someone who makes human decisions that will determine if a nation is in the will of God or not. Would you want someone that had authority issues? That didn't like obeying or submitting to a higher authority that likes to control outcomes? Someone who's a know-it-all that thinks they have every answer and doesn't need to consult anyone else that they can just make it up as they go along because they know best. Or someone who has a need for self-worth, whose heart is inclined uh, to build a legacy and to be the center. That's what they want. Would you want someone who is in it for the glory of God, that wanted God's best and was inclined to seek Him with all their heart and walk in obedience to Him? You say, well, I understand those examples, and sure, I'd want the surgeon or the pilot or the king or the leader to be a person who's obedient to the one who's all authoritative. But what about me? I'm none of those things, so why isn't obedience important to me? Here's why. Because obedience affects three areas in every life. Number one, obedience affects safety. We teach our kids, or at least I do, from a very early age to come when they're called. And the word obey is always attached to that command. You need to obey daddy and come. Now, it might not be of much consequence when they're in the living room or being called to the table. But when they're in the middle of a crowded road or in a parking lot near a playground and we say come and they don't understand the danger that exists, it's important that they obey. Safety, I'm sorry, obedience also affects the safety of others. As in the case of the surgeon or in the pilot, if you're not obedient and you don't do as the procedure requires, then you're putting someone else in danger. And so it's important to be obedient. And number three, the reason obedience is important is because obedience determines the amount of capacity and authority that we receive from God. God is not going to give to us that which we will use ultimately to harm ourselves or that will be detrimental to others. And he doesn't violate our will. And so it's important that we be obedient, especially in the things of God, if we're ever going to reach our full potential of what he has made us to be. Now, there's three factors that determine anyone's level of obedience. And where anyone is at with these three things, it will determine how obedient they are. Number one is trust. See, if you trust the one that you're called to obey, well, then you'll obey more readily because you'll know that you're in good hands and that it's safe. Second of all is experience. See, if you've experienced a little bit of life, you've learned, like I have, that you're not perfect and that you make mistakes and you don't have all the answers. And once you've experienced some of the failure and the pain that comes along with that, it makes you more readily uh, turned to listen to what you're being told uh, because of it. And number three is pride. If there's pride existing in our lives, it really doesn't matter how much trust we have or experience. We'll ultimately find ourselves in an area of disobedience again. 
And we see all three of these tonight in our study. We see trust, experience, and pride affecting obedience, which turns into a disaster. So we begin in chapter 8, and we begin talking about trust. And this is not with Saul. This is with the nation. As we come to chapter 8, we're introduced first to Samuel's sons. We're told that Samuel is old and that he made his sons judges in Beersheba, a more obscure town, but nevertheless, it tells us that they were corrupt, that they didn't walk in the ways of Samuel, that they were perverse. And so the people of the nation, the heads of tribes, they come to Samuel and they ask him to give them a king. They say, please give us a king that will rule over us so that we can be like the other nations. A king that will go out and fight our battles and that will take care of us, that will rule over us. That's what we want you to do for us, Samuel. And Samuel hears that request and he's grieved because of it. But he takes it to the Lord and he tells the Lord what they've asked for. And the Lord encourages Samuel. He says, Samuel, don't worry. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me in asking you for this thing. But I want you to honor their request. Only do this. Tell them the manner of the king that will rule over them. Tell them what it's going to cost them to have this king uh, rule them. Tell them that their sons will be taken to build up his military and his municipality. That his daughters will be taken to be his bakers and his cooks. That there will be taxes, at least 10%, on top of the 10% you're already required to give to the Lord. And he'll take the best of everything you have. And he'll create a government sector of jobs that will hurt your families and your farms. And so Samuel took the word of God back to the people and gave them the warning. But the people persisted. And they said, yes, we still want a king to rule over us. And thus, the request was ratified. And Samuel honored, uh, at least in word at this point, that he would do what they were asking him to do. Now, the clear lesson and application of this chapter, it speaks to us concerning the place of motives and patience in the things that we ask for. Now, what we know from Scripture is that it was always God's will that they would ultimately have a king rule over them. When God first called Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he promised him, he said, that kings will be born of you. God reiterated the promise to Jacob two generations later, and he said, kings will come from you as I establish the promise that I've made uh, with Abraham with you. In Deuteronomy, when Moses was giving to the people the final instructions of God before he passed off the scene, he gave instructions concerning when a king would come. He said, when there's a king that rules over you, make sure that he doesn't multiply horses and wives to himself. He gives other instructions and says, and make sure that that king writes out by hand a copy of this law for himself so that He doesn't get lifted up in pride and think himself to be above any one of his brothers and that he ultimately submits to and listens to me. The point is that God had it in his mind and will that he would make his people have a king over them. But it wouldn't be a king that would violate the theocratic government of God. That is, God would still be their ruler and their king ultimately. He would just operate and move through the king that he would give them. Therefore, listen. The sin of the people in asking for a king, which the chapter clearly puts forth that it was a sin for them to ask for a king. The sin was not in the asking for the king. The sin was in the reason that they wanted the king. They said a king so that we can be like the other nations. It was an issue of their motive. That's what they wanted. 
Now, what they really wanted, though they said, we want to be like the other nations, what they were really seeking was a means of circumventing morality. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. See, we've learned by this time as we've been going through that if the people did what was right, if they walked according to the ways of God, if they were obedient to what he said, that God would protect them, that he would bless them, that he would open the windows of heaven, that they would have houses that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant, olive groves, and, and that they, there would be so much that they wouldn't even be able to contain the blessing. But if they would turn from the ways of God and they would walk in disobedience, they would be sold into the hand of their enemies. They would lose the things that they had. God would withhold the rain from coming over them. And all of that would happen as a result of their disobedience. So as long as they obeyed and walked rightly with God, God would be sure to provide them with everything they needed. Now, they got tired of that system and of those terms. And so they said, God, give us a king. Because that way, when we fall into the hands of our enemies, or when things don't go right, we can fall back on our king to protect us and on his government to provide for us. It was a means of circumventing the moral ways of God. That's what they wanted. They wanted to disobey, but not have to worry about the consequences. People do that all the time in today's world. They look for ways that they don't have to obey or give heed to the things of God and yet not have to suffer the consequences. Many people that turn to drugs or that use substances to satisfy a troubled soul, the reason for it is because they, they, they aren't right in the eyes of God. They'll turn to a substance to satisfy a grating upon the soul. But if they would turn to God, the Bible says that he restores our soul. He's the soul doctor. He knows how it works. And so if we would walk right with God, we wouldn't need those other things. But we seek to circumvent God's morality by putting other things over us within our lives. The other issue that these people had that made their request a sin was the timing. God would make them a king, but God's will was ultimately that he would raise up David for them. We saw that through the setup that came through the book of Ruth. God was working. He had a plan. He was going to do something. That's what David was going to do. That's why he was being brought up. And had they waited another 40 years, God would have had David on the scene, prepared and ready. But they didn't want to wait for what God had for them. And so therefore they jumped in front of God and said, we want it now. In James chapter 4, it's a famous passage. James says, he writes, concerning the things that we ask God for. He said this. He said, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, sometimes you don't have because you do not ask. He says, sometimes you ask and do not have because your asking is amiss. That word amiss means out of adjustment. It means that your motives or perhaps your timing is off. The things that you're asking, it might be God's will. He may want to give you the things that you're praying for. It just may be that your motives are wrong or the timing is wrong. You're asking God for a job or a spouse or for children or for ministry or for a calling upon your life, or for healing, or to remove you from some situation. But let me ask you, why are you asking God for those things, whatever they might be? Whatever it is that you're asking God for right now in your life, why are you asking him for it, if you're honest with yourself? Second of all, are you willing to wait 
while God makes your why his why. Because God might be willing to give you the very thing that you're asking for. It just might be that the, 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 the reason you want it isn't the same reason that he wants to give it to you. And what he's doing right now is he's bringing those two things into harmony. He's making why you want what he wants the same reason he wants what he wants. And then he will do in your life what he's wanting to do. The question is, do we trust him? Do the people of God trust in God? That he's good? That he has our best in mind? That he's working all things out and working it together for our good? And trust, when we trust him, it always results in patient obedience. But a lack of trust will always lead to rebellion. And that's what we see happening in the lives of God's people in chapter 8. They are not willing to trust in God, and so they ask for a king. We come to chapter 9, and we move from trust to experience. And we meet Saul for the first time, Israel's failure of a king. We find, first of all, that he's a man from the tribe of Benjamin. His father, a man named Kish, who's wealthy, a reputable father. We find in Saul that he's a choice young man, that we would say that he has promise. There's something about him, but that promise was all bound up in the way that he looked. He was handsome, he was tall, he was head and shoulders above the rest of the people. The word in the Hebrew actually means that he was stunning. That when you'd see Saul coming, there was something about him. His presence was electric, and he drew people to himself. Well, the first scene where we meet him, Saul's father sends him on an errand. He says, son, my donkeys are missing, and I want you to take the servant, and I want you to go find the donkeys. So Saul takes the servant. He goes in search of the donkeys. They trek through five cities in search of these uh, donkeys, and they don't find them. And then finally, Saul says, let's go home. But the servant says, hey, this city has a seer. There's a prophet who lives here, a man named Samuel. Perhaps we can go and we can talk to the prophet and he'll tell us where the donkeys are. Well, Saul says, we've got nothing to give him. We've got to bring him a gift if we're going to come. And I've got nothing. The bread is stale. And the servant says, well, I've got a quarter of a wedge of silver. We could give that to him and maybe he'll tell us. So Saul says, all right, let's go. Well, as they're going, they meet a couple of women coming out of the city. They say, is the seer here? And they say, yeah, he's up there. They're having a sacrifice at the high place. Maybe you'll catch him before he goes. And as Saul comes into the city, he sees a man in the gate and says, hey, is the prophet here? Is the seer here? And he's speaking with Samuel himself. And the Bible tells us at that point that the Lord had spoken to Samuel the day previously and told him that there would be a man that would come and ask that question and that that was the man that God was choosing to be king. And so Samuel looks at Saul and he smiles and he says, ah, we've been waiting for you. And he says, we're not going to eat until you get here. Aren't you the one whom all the eyes of Israel are upon? And Saul's confused. He says, we're just looking for some donkeys. What's this all about? And who am I? I think you must have mistaken me for someone else. I'm just a Benjamite and my family has no influence, no prominence in Israel. And Samuel said, no, we're not going to eat till you get here. But come on, let's go. So they go to the feast, and the choice seat, the best place, the seat of honor is reserved for Saul. And so Saul and his servant come, and Samuel brings the best portion of meat. He said, this portion of meat's been set aside for you. Now come and eat it. Let's eat together. And then he said, now come stay at my house, and then in the morning I'm going to show you the word of God. And so they commune together in the morning. They rise up, and as we cross over then into chapter uh, 10 in the narrative, we find that Samuel says to Saul, he says, send the servant ahead. I want to talk to you privately. And then it says that he dumps a vial of oil upon the head of Saul. 
And he said, the Lord has chosen you to be the commander of his people. He is anointing you to be the king, the captain over his inheritance. And then Samuel prophesies over Saul. He gives him four signs. He says, when you depart from me today, you're going to meet two men by Rachel's tomb. They're going to tell you that your father's worried about you and that he's found the donkeys. Once you move forward from there, you're going to meet three men going to Bethel. One man will have three goats, one will have three loaves of bread, and the other will have a wine of skin. Take two loaves of bread from the man with the bread and move on. Then, number three, you're going to come to the hill near the Philistine outpost. Pass the city, then go to the high place, and you're going to meet a company of prophets that are coming down from their place. And when they prophesy, you will be turned into another man and do as the occasion serves you. Give yourself to whatever God does to you at that moment. And he says, then, one more thing, sign number four. He says, when you come to Gilgal and you don't know what to do, wait for me for seven days and I will come and sacrifice to the Lord and tell you what to do. So Saul leaves from Samuel. He goes and the signs come to pass exactly as Samuel said that they would. He meets the prophets ultimately and he begins to prophesy. A new heart is given to him. And so much to the amazement of those that knew Saul, that were familiar with who he was, that they were actually shocked. And they said, is Saul among the prophets? And it became a proverb in Israel. That's how um, contrary to who he had been, it was for Saul to be among the prophets. Well, he arrives home. His uncle says, where have you been? He says, I ran into Samuel. And his uncle asked, what did Samuel say? And Saul said, well, he told me the donkeys are found, but he didn't tell his uncle that he had been chosen to become the king. And then Samuel calls all the people to Mizpah, and he says, it's time to anoint your king. And he calls forth the children of Israel, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin is taken. And then by family, and the family of Matri, Saul's patronage is called. And then ultimately Saul is chosen, but he's nowhere to be found. And they say, where's Saul? And they look for him and they pray and God says he's hiding by the equipment. And so they search and they find him and they bring him out to the people and behold, he stands head and shoulders above the rest. And Samuel proclaims, behold, your king that you've asked God for. And the people said, God saved the king. But some scoffed and said, should this man rule over us? Now, it's important to note that, that he was not officially coronated as the king at this time. He was announced to them. And then, of course, chapter 10 comes to a close. Well, let's pull these chapters together. What's going on here? I call these chapters, I titled them, The Little Child in the Velvet Robe. And there's a couple of things that you've got to understand about Saul in this setting and in these scenes. Though Saul appears to have promise and a little bit of humility, and perhaps he's got the kind of character that would make a king, we look a little bit between the lines and we see that there's some serious flaws in who he is. First of all, it strikes me as odd that his father sent him to go fetch the donkeys. Now, I have worked on numerous multitude of job sites, different jobs and settings. And without fail every time, and if you've ever been there, you'll concur. Who goes on the errand when an errand needs to be going on? The least productive person, without fail. The one who sits on his hands and does nothing is the one who takes the order and goes and gets the coffee. Why does Saul send, um, yeah, Kish send Saul to go get the donkeys? Well, I might be speculating a little bit, 
but perhaps he's the least productive. He's good for an errand boy. Second thing we notice is that he has no idea who Samuel is, and he certainly isn't familiar with the ways of God. He's got no relationship with God. He thinks that he's got to pay a prophet in order to receive a message. If he knew anything about the Lord at all, he would know that that's not the way God works. And if he knew Samuel at all, he would know that Samuel would never accept payment for service for the Lord. Another thing we observe is that he's a rich man and a rich man's son, but yet he has to borrow a wedge of silver from a slave in order to pay that fee if he's even gonna. That he didn't plan ahead even to be prepared for the trip that he would go on. And then finally, we see that his friends were so thrown off by seeing him prophesy that Saul prophesying became a proverb in Israel. They said, him? He's a prophet? Now listen. Yes, I know that God changes lives. That every one of us here has someone in our life that looked at us and said, you? You're among the people of God? And they laughed at us because they know what we once were. And yes, it's true that God changes life. And yes, it's true that God changed Saul's heart. It says it very clearly in the Bible. But what it illustrates for us is how far Saul had to come in order to become the kind of stable man Israel needed to be their king. Now, what's the, what's the um, common thread in all of this as we knit together this man that we're beginning to see? What we have in Saul is we have a man that has almost zero life experience. Now, he has a bit of common sense humility, but otherwise, the sum of his strength is all in his outward appearance. There's no character, there's no reliance or reliability, no relationship with God. He's unbroken, he's never suffered a day in his life, and he certainly isn't one who can yet relate to people. What we find is that he is, and the text will prove this out, a train wreck waiting to happen. Now imagine for a moment in your own life that 20-something person you know. That person that has life by the tail. They've got money and they come from money. They've been educated. They've always had their food paid for, their shelter. And they talk to you with that, yeah, you wish you could be me attitude. You know that person I'm talking about? You've met them somewhere. Perhaps you work with them. Perhaps you are them. Or perhaps they are sleeping upstairs in your house uh, right now, you know. But what ultimately happens to that 20-something person is that they finally land that job that they've always wanted. And they launch out on their own. And something in you begins to smile. And you say, <laughs> now they're going to see what life is really like. You know. And the reason you're laughing is not because you want to see them suffer, but because you know that when they get out there and they experience some of life, they're going to be adjusted and they're going to become mature. They're going to gain some experience. Now, what if, for one minute, imagine that 20-something person that you know didn't just land the job that they wanted, but they were elevated to the place of king over a whole nation. They're unbroken. They're inexperienced. They know nothing about life, but now all of a sudden, they're king. Here you are. Here's a throne in a velvet robe. Sit on it. Here's your scepter. Do whatever you want. You're the king. Tax the people. Take what you want. Absolute autonomy. It belongs to you completely. Oh, goodness. Now, the wild card in this is that God's in it. God's the one that's actually ordained this, that he's called it forward. He's behind it. And it is true that it is possible to learn in the way. It is possible for God to put someone in something that is so far beyond what their life experience dictates or, or, or would allow for. But all the more so then 
it necessitates obedience. That if you're in that position, you're in over your head, then you must walk in absolute dependence upon God and obedience to God. And, and, and if not, you're going to fail. And listen, the way that we learn, the way that we gain experience in life and become valuable is through our failures. Without those failures, we're useless. And so God, for us, he puts us in low stakes positions. He lets us fail. He lets us struggle. He lets us go through things. And through those struggles and failures, we learn. We gain character in those things. Saul had none. He had nothing. The application, the point for you and I is this. is Don't run away from the days of preparation. Embrace the difficult things that God is doing in your life. Accept the challenge that life brings. Because it's through those things that God's going to develop in you the experience you need to learn that you need to rely completely and totally on Him. And then in that, He can then increase your capacity and your authority and your fruitfulness in the thing that He's ultimately made you to do. That's His way. That's what He wants to do. His desire is to bless us. How many times do we read in Scripture of people that it says they grew in favor with God and men? There's a reason why God promotes through the ranks and doesn't drop it on us all at once. Now, one more thing before we move on to chapter 11, and that's this. That three of the signs that Samuel gave to Saul came to pass immediately. But one of them won't happen for two years. And that's going to become important for the story moving forward. Well, we come to chapter 11, and tragedy strikes. It's a tragic chapter, chapter 11. You might even want to write that over the heading of it in your Bible. A group of Israel's enemies called the Ammonites, led by a man named Nahash, invade Jabesh-Gilead, a town in Israel. They say, surrender or die. They put the ultimatum to Israel. And Israel comes to them and they say, hey, can, is there any chance for peace? We're no match for your strength. And so is there any way we can form a treaty with you? And the men of the Ammonites say to them, here's the treaty. If you'll let us poke out your right eye, every one of you in the village, then we'll come, come to conditions of peace so that we can shame Israel. And it was so bad in those days that the Israelites said, let us think about it. They said, give us seven days, we're going to send a message throughout, and if no one comes to help us, we'll let you poke out our eyes and we'll make peace with you. That's how sure they were that they would be defeated. So they go home and they send out word throughout Israel that they've been in, invaded, and they ask Israel to help. And word ultimately comes to Saul, this newly ordained king, this commander to be. And it tells us that when he heard what the men of the Ammonites did, it says that his anger was aroused within him. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he did something that any clear-thinking child would do. He took a yoke of his father's oxen and hacked them into pieces. And then he sent those pieces throughout Israel with a note attached that if anyone doesn't come and join me in the battle, this is what will happen to your oxen. Now, can you imagine getting that package from the UPS man? Oh, the UPS man is here. What is it? Oh, it's from the king, honey. Oh, open it. What's inside? Oh, it's, it's a severed cow leg. And, oh, and there's a note attached. Oh, you're invited to a war. And it, oh, and, and if you don't come... This will be your severed cow leg. You know, oh, honey, you better get your stuff. You know, I mean, can you imagine that that's the case? But, but sure enough, the people, they say, well, we better do what he's saying. I mean, Samuel said he's the king. And so they gather together with one accord 
And they go to war against these Ammonites that invaded uh, Jabesh Gilead. And here's the thing that happens. It's the tragic part of the chapter. They win. They drive back the Ammonites. They defeat them so readily that the people rejoice. They call Samuel together. And Samuel then officially coronates Saul as king before the people. And his kingdom is now established. The authority is arranged under him. So what's the point? You say it's a tragedy, but they won. How is it a tragedy when they won? Here's why. Because this is the way, the way that Saul operated in that setting, this is the way that he's going to rule the kingdom for the next 40 years. Not as a representation of God, but with an iron fist. Not ruling with love and leading, but driving them like a herd of oxen with fear and provoking them by his authority. This same man that just won this battle is later on going to humiliate and grieve Samuel. He's going to seek to kill his own son twice. He's going to kill 80 priests of the Lord out of suspicion. He's going to spend the majority of his strength hunting down those that are a threat to his reign and his kingdom, even of his own citizens. He'll lose his sanity, grossly misrepresent God, and he'll die early. Bottom line is that this is not the way that God rules. Saul is failing on his first day to rightly represent the God who he is representing and serving. God is patient. He rules by love. He wins our allegiance. He doesn't demand our obedience. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. Not the severity of God. In Jude, verses 22 and 23, Jude exhorts in the Lord, and he says, On some have compassion, making a difference. Others save with fear, plucking them from the fire, hating even the garment that's spotted by the flesh. In other words, let love be your influence in the world, and if necessary, then save some with fear for the sake of pulling them out of the fire. But that's not the way God leads. He doesn't lead forth with fear. What if he did? What if the UPS man showed up at your house and your wife said, honey, a package, what is it? Oh, it's from the Lord. It's a severed human head. And he says, if we don't get our lives in check and start doing what we're supposed to, that, oh, well, this is going to be us. Honey, we better start. God doesn't rule that way. That's not the heart of God. That's not how he is. He woos us with his love. He wins our allegiance. God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. He that spared not his own son, but freely delivered him for us all. How much more will he not now freely give us all things? It's the grace of God that's been revealed through Jesus Christ that God is love. And God wins us this way. Saul is a gross misrepresentation of the God that he is to represent. So why did God give him the victory? You say, if this was the worst thing that ever happened to Saul, and I suggest that it was, then why didn't God let them tuck their tail and be defeated so that he could get his methods right? Like he did for Joshua when they supposed that they would just win at Ai without praying. God let them get their tail tucked so that their attitude would be adjusted. Why didn't he do that here? Here's why. Because God loves his people. And sometimes God will give his people a victory even though a leader misrepresents him. And that's a scary thing to consider. It's it's a scary thing for you, dad, for you, mom, or for you, boss, or for you, alpha male in a group of friends who has influence over how those friends behave and act. 
that God might do something and give success in a situation, not because he's honoring the way you're leading or the example you're giving, but because he loves them and he's going to do good to them. It's a scary thing that happens here. It's a tragic thing. And so Saul's lack of experience plus a little success turns into a destructive pride. And Paul or Saul here is going to become power drunk. There's a verse in the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 10, verse 30. And it's a puzzling verse. It, 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 I think about it a lot. It says this. Jesus said, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. God knows how many hairs are on your head and not one of them falls to the ground without him knowing it. Now, I know we think, well, yeah, God just knows everything. And so that's just kind of, listen, the, the number of hairs on my head changes several times throughout the day. I know I'm trying to hide it with the curtains on the side, but I know what's going on in here, you know. But what's the point of that verse? Is he just telling us how much he knows? No, here's the point, what Jesus wants you to know. Is that he knows things about you that you don't even know about you. It's true for your physical frame concerning the number of hairs, but it's also true concerning the contents of your heart. He knows what's really going on inside. He knows the areas of pride, of unbrokenness, where there's a lack of surrender, what needs to happen in us so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. And sometimes God allows, even ordains, tragedy to come into our lives, not because he's trying to destroy us, but because he's trying to destroy the things in us that one day will destroy us if they aren't first destroyed. He doesn't do that for Saul here for the sake of his people, and it turns out to be a destruction for Saul. If God orders something in your life to adjust things for his glory, let him do it. Don't run from it. Well, chapter 12, Samuel steps aside. It's a chapter where now the king has been coronated. The people have gotten what they've, what they've asked for. And so he goes on record concerning his ministry and his integrity he testifies to them concerning the Lord's faithfulness and their error in asking for a king. And then he challenges them to walk in humility and to keep their eyes on him. There's one thing in this chapter that's worth of pointing out. Remember back in chapter 8 when the people asked for a king and I said to you that the reason they were asking for the king is because they wanted to circumvent morality? Basically in chapter 12, Samuel responds to the people and he says, Oh yeah, guys, that thing that you wanted, the reason you wanted the king, it's not going to work. If you disobey the Lord, he's still going to let your enemies defeat you. And you're still going to suffer calamity. So nice try, but God, you can't manipulate God, you know. But I like chapter 12. God is mentioned by name 32 times by Samuel. He was a faithful witness. And so out goes the lamp and in comes the tyrant. We come to chapter 13 and Saul's flaws now begin to crack. Saul's pride now leads to his first manifested act of disobedience. It tells us that he reigned one year, but when he reigned two, or in his second year, it says that they were lined in battle against the Philistines, and it says that Jonathan, Saul's son, smote or defeated a garrison or a troop, a unit of the Philistines. But Saul blew the trumpet. And let it be declared throughout Israel that Saul has smote a garrison of the Philistines. He wouldn't even let his son have credit for a victory in a battle. He had to make sure that the people knew themselves. But it backfired. Here's why. Because the Philistines were so shaken by this that they regrouped. They gathered all of their resources, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, an innumerable multitude of people. It says a multitude that was more like the sand on the seashore. And they now surround 
the infant army of Israel that had absolutely no swords or iron weapons at all. And so scared were the children of Israel that they fled from King Saul. They hid in dens and in rocks and in valleys. Anywhere where they could get away, they were hiding themselves. And the people were scattered from Saul while he was there waiting in, get it, Gilgal. You remember Gilgal? What did Samuel say when he first met Saul? He said, and when you come to Gilgal and you don't know what to do, wait for me for seven days and I will come and sacrifice to the Lord and then tell you what to do. Well, day one through six passed by. It's the seventh day. The people are scattered. Saul is distressed. He feels like the grip of his leadership is slipping through his fingers. And when Samuel doesn't show up, the sun begins to set on the seventh day. And he says, well, Samuel's not coming. I better do it myself. And so he intrudes into the office of the priesthood and he offers an offering to the Lord. It was forbidden of kings. It was an act of direct disobedience, not only to the instruction of Samuel, but also to the written word of God. He no sooner finishes offering the sacrifice and Samuel shows up. And he says, what is this that you have done? He calls him a fool. He says, you have done foolishly. Love that line. Right out of Indiana Jones. You have chosen foolishly, you know. And that's exactly what Saul did. He chose to disobey what God said to do. And Samuel said that the consequence of this is that the kingdom will be taken from you and given to another who is better than you. You say, whoa, wait a minute. That was... One mistake, that's right. It's a lesson in exactness. If you're in leadership, the stakes are high. And if you're not going to follow and obey what God tells you to do, then you're not a resource, you're a liability. And so you will be taken out from the kingdom. Now here's the amazing thing as you come to the end of the chapter. The panic that had set into Saul because of the huge array of Philistines that had surrounded them, guess what? It comes to nothing. There's never even a battle. The Philistines split off into three bands. One goes one way, another the other, and another the other. And the children of Israel kind of hang back, and there's no battle at all. So what's the point? Here's the point. This is only a test. If it had been an actual emergency, this battle call would have been followed by more instructions. No, it was a test. God was just seeing, will Saul do the thing that I have asked him to do, or will he act presumptively and act out on his own? And Saul failed the test. It was a total uh, failure on his part. Listen, greatness for you and me does not happen often in a huge defining moment. It would have, for Saul in this case, it would have been a great victory for him as he passed the test. But for you and I, it's not usually like that. You know, one moment where there's one big test and it's pass or fail. But rather, for you and I, usually it's in making wise choices in many seemingly insignificant moments. It's obeying God in the small things. It's taking heed to what he shares with us in his word or what he's putting upon our heart. And not thinking that we know better or that we can land a plane backwards or there's a new way to do this procedure. It's in the small obedient things. There's a big difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. See, head knowledge is something that I'm giving to you right now in a lot of ways. I'm explaining things to you and you're learning. Perhaps you're taking notes. Heart knowledge is when that head knowledge has translated into who you are. So no longer is it a conscious decision, oh, I can obey or disobey. No, no, no. The obedience is written upon your heart. It's been woven into the tapestry of your character. 
And so when the moment comes, it's not even an option of will I go right or will I go left? No, I'm always going to go God's way, whatever it is, because the experience of walking with him has translated head knowledge into heart knowledge. But here's the secret. Especially for someone like Saul, or perhaps for you that find yourself in over your head in areas of your life and you don't know what to do. Head knowledge becomes heart knowledge when we obey. Right now, maybe I don't even understand why this is what God would have me do or not do, but I'm going to do it because I trust him. The outcome of that will be what was birthed in your head will be born in your heart, and it will become an outflow of who you are, and God will trust you, and he'll elevate you and lift you up. Now, God's going to give Saul another chance, and I'm thankful for that. It gives me a little bit of hope. But here's a spoiler. He's going to fail. Chapter 14 The bright spot of this whole segment of scripture, but it doesn't center around Saul. It centers around his son, Jonathan. And then it becomes a dark spot because Saul ruins it. It happens that Jonathan wakes up one morning. And he's there with his armor bearer. And it seems as though he's separated from the rest of the 600 men that are all gathered there. And he looks at his armor bearer and he says, hey, let's go over towards the garrison of the Philistines. So the armor bearer agrees and they make their way over. And as Jonathan is looking at it, he's thinking in his mind and he starts to think, you know what? God doesn't need a whole army to deliver his people or to give forth the victory. If he wanted to, he could do it with just us. There's a great verse. It's verse 6 of chapter 14. And it says, Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so they pass through. They come through a narrow passage that leads to where the Philistines are. And Jonathan says, here's what we'll do. We're going to make ourselves seen by them. And when they see us, we'll listen to what they say. And if they say to us, you come up here and we'll show you something. Then we're going to go up and believe that God's going to deliver them into our hands. But if they say, you stay there and we're going to come to you. Then we'll get out of here and we'll trust that this isn't God and, you know, We're walking by faith, but we don't want to be presumptuous, so we'll get out of here. And so they reveal themselves, and the Philistines say, hey, come up here, and we'll show you a thing or two. And Jonathan says, yeah. He says, let's go. And the armor bearer says, let's go. And so they go up, and Jonathan starts to take out by himself with his armor bearer, Philistine after Philistine. The whole camp of the Philistine erupts with a battle cry, with a tumult, with noise. The dust is flying. Saul and the rest of the people down in the camp below, they wake up and they realize what's going on. That, hey, there's a siege. There's something happening. What is it? And Saul quickly says, quick, take attendance. Who's missing? And so they call out and they find out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. And so he says, what's going on? He says, call the priest over. And he calls the priest. He says, now pray. Put your hand on the ark and pray. Ask God what we should do. And so the priest begins to pray. But Saul grows impatient. He says, stop praying. Let's move. Just like Saul, you know. And so they go into the battle. They join with Jonathan and the armor bearer. Other Israelites that heard the noise from surrounding areas join in. And the Israelites rout the Philistines that day. There's a great victory and the Philistines are chased. But in the midst of it, Saul made a foolish move. He made the people vow that they wouldn't eat any food until the battle was over and he had been avenged of his enemies. He made it all about him at the expense of the people's appetite. And so as the battle was going, it says that the people grew faint. But Jonathan, who didn't hear the vow, 
found some honey in a field and he dipped the tip of his rod, his staff in the honey and then to his mouth and it energized him. And the people looked at him and he looked at them and they weren't eating. And he said, what gives? And they said, didn't you hear the oath of your father? He said, anyone that eats today will be put to death. And Jonathan got angry and he said, my father troubles Israel. He says, if the men were able to eat, then we would have been able to go that much further in our advance against the Philistines. Nevertheless, they still win the battle. And they finish that day and the people end up sinning because they're so hungry that they find animals and they just rip them open and start eating them without cooking them. And Saul hears it and he says, don't do that. He says, bring the animals to me. And then he prays. He says, calls the priest and he says, God, should we continue to fight the Philistines? And God doesn't answer. And so Saul, the self-righteous, self-sufficient man that he was, he says, who ate? Somebody ate today, and that's why God's not talking to us right now. Somebody violated my vow that I gave. And he said, and even if it's Jonathan, my son, he will die, according to my word. And so nobody spoke because they didn't want to throw Jonathan under the bus. And Saul calls the priest, and he casts lots. And he says, me and Jonathan will be on one side, everyone else on the other. And they throw the lot, and the lot falls on Jonathan and Saul. And then Saul looks at Jonathan and he says, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan goes, you idiot. No, he didn't really say that. I put that in. That's not in the original text, you know. He said, yeah, I ate. And I'm going to die. And Saul said, God, do so more to me if you don't. Yeah, you're going to die. And then the people stepped in front of Jonathan. And they said, this man, Jonathan, who fought with God today is not going to die. He fought with God. He's not going to die. And so Saul stepped aside, and it doesn't say what his reaction was, but you can only imagine what it was. What's the application? Here's the application of chapter 14, is that God honors faith. Is that he doesn't need all of the ingenuity of men. He doesn't need professional things. He doesn't need education. He doesn't need anything that we would ever bring to the table thinking that God can use or bless us because we have it. He honors faith. And when we step out in faith because we trust him, and we seek him and we rely upon him, we find victory in areas where otherwise it would be absolutely impossible. We come to chapter 15, our final chapter of our study tonight, and we see Saul's second chance and his final failure. When Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and I, I meant Moses, I didn't mix up words there. When they first crossed the Red Sea and they came into the wilderness, and God was just beginning to lead this infant nation of Israel. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 17 that a group of people called the Amalekites, perhaps you've heard that name, that nation name, as you've been trekking with us through these Old Testament chapters. They besieged or hijacked or sought to uh, invade Israel and cut them off while they were at their most vulnerable and weakest point. And a famous battle begins between the Israelites and Amalek in that time. Joshua takes the men of war and they go down into the valley. And Moses takes Aaron and Hur and he goes up on a hill and he intercedes and he prays. He lifts his hands towards heaven. And he finds that as long as his hands are lifted towards heaven, Joshua and the people in the valley below prevail. But when his hands get heavy and they start to fall, then Amalek prevails. And so he strengthens and he lifts up and Joshua prevails. And so he starts playing a game and going... 
wow, this is fun. You know, I don't like that guy, you know. And, 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 you know, no, he starts, but, but, but then he realizes, hey, this is the key. The key is in our intercession. So Aaron and her, his, 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 his helpers, they come over and they hold up his arms. And Joshua prevails in the battle. Well, there's a great verse when you come to chapter uh, verses um, 15 and 16. It says there in the text that, that, that Moses built an altar to the Lord in honor of the victory. And he called the name Jehovah Nisi, or the Lord is my banner, the Lord who fights for me. But then he gives a prophecy. And he says there that Amalek will be a perpetual enemy of Israel. He says that there will be war. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amalek, by the way, becomes a picture, scripturally, for you and I of the flesh. It's our perpetual enemy. The one that no matter how much we beat it back, it will regain strength and come back at us again later on. But Amalek was that enemy that for Israel was perpetually in their face, constantly knocking them down. Well, in Deuteronomy 25... When Moses now was going to die and send the children of Israel in, he gave them a specific command that when they come into the land, they are to utterly annihilate the Amalekites because of what they did to Israel when they were vulnerable in the wilderness. That was the command that God had given. Well, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul gives the orders for that attack to Samuel gives the orders for that attack to Saul. He says, Saul, gather men and go and fight Amalek because of what he did to Israel in those early days. And he gives him specific instructions. He says, utterly wipe them out. Don't let anything survive. All their livestock, their donkeys, their camels, their oxen, everything, nothing is to survive of that. So Saul gathers the troops, he goes into the battle, and he does what he is called to do. But he spares Agag the king. Perhaps a war trophy, a POW, someone to bring home, a souvenir to say, yeah, we did it, we conquered. It also says that he spared, and the people spared, the best of the livestock. It didn't make sense to them why they would kill a perfectly good sheep. Besides, what harm could a sheep cause just because it belonged to a group of people. And since it's a flawless sheep, we'll take it back to Israel. We'll sacrifice it to the Lord. We'll give it to God. It will be war spoils for God. Problem is, that's not what God said. God said, wipe everything out. Let nothing live. Well, God speaks to Samuel in a dream at night. And he says, I'm sorry that I made Saul king. Because he persists in his disobedience and doesn't do the things that I ask him to do. And so Samuel goes out to meet Saul the next day. And when Saul sees Samuel, he comes to him and he says, Blessed be thou of the Lord. He's got the Christian lingo down, you know. I have fulfilled all that God called me to do. And Samuel, with stoic expression, looks upon Saul. And he says, Then what means this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? If you've obeyed what God's told you to do, then why are, what's going on? Oh, well, I... I no, I did obey, I, I, but I mean, the people, they, 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 they wouldn't do it. I mean, what sense does it make? I mean, why would no one would do your, I mean, of course we obeyed. We did what God asked. And he said, you didn't obey. And if you look at chapter 15, in verse 15, 
says that Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. So Samuel said, this is the key verse of the whole section of Saul's life, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Well, Saul hears these words. He's irate. He's incensed. He confesses, but he doesn't change his mind. And when Saul is told that he's going to lose the kingdom, he begs Samuel to change his mind. And God says, Samuel says, God does not change his mind. And it says that as Samuel turned away from Saul, it says that Saul grabbed a hold of Samuel's garment and tore it. And Samuel turned and said, God has torn the kingdom from you this day and given it to your neighbor, someone who's better than you. Words that must have stung in the soul of that prideful failure of a king, this man, King Saul. But look with me at the close of the chapter in verse 31. Samuel is convinced to come back with Saul. I don't know why, but he went with Saul. But look what happens. It says, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He thought he would live. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's how you obey God. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I wish that every lesson that we learned in this life as it concerns our faith, that we could learn from good examples. That we could see someone succeed and someone do something the right way. And we could look at it and say, yeah, that's the way I want to model my life and that's the way I want to live. And that's the way we learned all of our lessons. Fortunately, it doesn't work that way too often, does it? What I found is that you can learn as much from someone who does something wrong as you can from someone who does something right. And through Saul's life, we learn what not to do as we seek to become what God has called each one of us in our lives to be. 
We can learn from the failures of others the things that we don't want to do ourselves. And this is how not can be as valuable as this is how. The other thing that this section of scripture does for us is that it sheds light on David's suffering. As we begin next week to get into the call of David and how God raises him up, we're going to see him go through hell. He's going to spend over a decade of his life wondering if he's even going to live to see morning. He's going to be stretched. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be torn up and down. He's going to be a fugitive running for his life. And you look and you say, why does he have to go through all that? Here's why. Because Saul is what happens if you don't. And God's going to raise up a king who's after his own heart. And David becomes a contrast point for Saul. And it becomes an encouragement to you and I. Because listen, I don't know about you, but I can certainly more relate to the one who's raked over the coals than I can the rich kid who's handed everything and all of a sudden gets to become king. Sometimes we think it'd be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't. God's doing something. The word for tonight is trust and obey. There's no other way but to trust and obey. Father, we thank you tonight for this segment of scripture. It teaches us so much. There's so many lessons and things that we can learn. But God, you've given us an example in Saul of what happens when we choose to rebel from your authority over our lives and to go our own way. And so rather than that, Lord, tonight our prayer is have thine own way. Have thine own way. Oh, Lord, that you would be the Lord of our lives and that we'd find ourselves trusting you, learning from our experiences and failings, And that our pride would be brought very low as we recognize, Lord, the grace that we've been given and the love that you've shown. And we thank you, Lord, that your example towards us is not to compel us through fear, but you draw us by your cords of love. So work in us, Lord, and we give thanks for this word. And we look to you in Jesus' name. Before I say amen, there is a form of disobedience that is even more dangerous than the example that we saw tonight in the life of Saul. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter writes and he says this. He says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, then what will the end of those be who do not obey the gospel of God? To disobey the gospel is the worst form of disobedience that ever will be because to disobey the gospel is to reject the provision of salvation, the free gift of forgiveness of sins that God has provided through Jesus Christ. And to reject that gift and to think that it's not necessary for you or to live your life apart from that is to disobey the gospel. The Bible says that man has fallen in sin. That every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And because of that, we're separated from God, even from our birth. But God has provided a remedy through His Son, Jesus. And there's absolutely no other way for you to be brought back into a relationship with God except through Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus only. You say, well, to obey that gospel challenges my intelligence. You mean to tell me that all that we see in the world and the answer for all of it is just to trust Jesus, to put my faith in Him? That challenges my intelligence. I know better. 
You may say it challenges your authority. If I place myself under his lordship, then, well, that means I'm submitted to him, that I'm not autonomously ruling my own life. You might say it challenges my dignity. I, I can save myself, and besides, I, I know the reputation that it, 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 it takes to be a born-againer. I don't, I don't know if I want to be that. It challenges my originality. I could be like Frank Sinatra, and I, I could do it my way. I'll figure out my own way to get to God. Besides, what I'm doing is, is good enough. You say it challenges my usefulness. If, if he had to die for me and, and there was nothing I could do to produce my own righteousness or my own salvation, then, then doesn't that mean that I'm worthless? Well, yes, it does. And no, it doesn't. And here's why. Because to God, you're not worthless. He loves you so much that he took your place in judgment. That he sent his son Jesus to, to, to die in your place. And the Bible says that you are made in the very image of God. And he made you in a way that he can express himself through you in a way that no one else can. You alone can reflect and represent his character and nature the way that he made you to. And that's it. That's why no one else looks like you. No one else is like you. And that makes you absolutely expendable to God. Now think about it. He didn't spare even his own son in his endeavor to want to save you and redeem you and bring you into a relationship with himself. So if you give your life to God, it doesn't take away those things from you. It actually completes those things. It completes your intelligence because you're now what God designed you to be. He becomes your authority because the living God who's high above all things is now the authority of your life. And so therefore you can walk with the favor of God in your life. He is your uniqueness because he's the one that made you to be who you are and he'll express you in a way that you never could because you were made to be filled with him. And he's the one that makes you useful because he's the one that can grow you in the grace and the knowledge and bring you to that place of exaltation and abundant life that you could never make on your own. And when you give your life to him, what you find is you find that he is the very reason that you were made. And when you're what he made you to be, the Bible says that you bring him pleasure. And when he is pleased, you are pleased because he is in you. And there is no greater life than the life that is lived for him. So what do you do? John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. Jesus purchased for you a free gift of salvation. He spilled his blood so that you could be brought into a loving relationship with God. He paid the price for your sin in full, and now he calls you to receive that gift. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. How do we do it? When the music begins to play, if God has touched you tonight, if perhaps like Saul who met Samuel on that day and was shocked that, hey, wait, all this is for me? Perhaps, yeah, tonight all this is for you. You tasted the word of God. You were touched by the spirit of God. You recognized and realized that God has a calling and a plan for your life. But tonight, he's calling out to you. When the music begins to play, here's what you do. is Get up out of your seat. Don't be ashamed. We've all made that walk before. Come stand right here and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And I'm willing to publicly confess you as my Savior. And as you come, as you obey God and obey the gospel and you come forward, you'll come up here. We'll all gather together and I'll pray with you. I'll give you the words and you'll talk to Jesus and he'll, 
Hear you, your heart. I'll give you the words, but you'll pray a prayer that's like this. God, I'm sorry for my sins and I need you to be my Lord and I want to go to heaven and I believe that you died and rose for me and I want to follow you and make you my Lord. The Bible says that when you pray that prayer, there's a transaction that takes place between heaven and earth. That God will hear it. He will meet with you right here. And he will complete your life and make you what you could never make yourself. And so this is your opportunity. You never know if you'll get another one. Could be that tonight it's all about you. Alexander's going to play. The whole church is going to pray. And if that's you, even if it's only one person, God is inviting you tonight to receive his son Jesus and to know the love that passes knowledge. We're praying, Alexander. Would you?